Thank you so much for worshiping with us this morning. Thanks again for being with us today, for giving to our church, supporting the ministry that God is doing here at Risen Church. And if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, if you don't, there should be one in the hymnal rack in front of you. Uh, I would love for you to turn with me to Matthew 28 and uh, also bookmark Ezekiel 37, if you will. We'll turn there at the end of our time together. But Matthew 28, a very familiar passage of scripture, we'll begin reading down in verse 16 uh, with a, um, a, a, most of your Bibles probably have a subtitle that is similar to the title of this series uh, in our message today. So we'll get into that in just a few minutes, but uh, um, We'll have some other texts that we'll put on the screen along the way that I think will help really make this message and this series one of the most important ones that we've ever covered and studied as a church. But it's been a little while since we've been in church like this. Uh, I apologize if I'm a bit rusty. Um, I, I slept, I had to sleep on the floor in the delivery room because they weren't expecting on us being there for 36 hours. So I think the, whatever that did to my back has just now hit me about a day ago. So um, yeah, if I, if I fall over or something, y'all just, uh, just come pick me up and prop me up. I think I'll be okay. I don't think I'm gonna fall. I might just be a little stiff. Um, but uh, you know, empty rooms and cameras and all that, that doesn't count. So again, if I'm a bit rusty, thank you for praying for me and enduring. By next week, we should be back um, like uh, we never had a break. But uh, two weeks ago, uh, as most of you know, um, I was here that morning morning. Um, uh, before most of you arrived, but uh, as everybody knows, uh, Lindsay uh, went into labor a little earlier than they, uh, or the induction was scheduled. So went into labor in Monday night, uh, about 9.50. Uh, Andrea was born and uh, I could spend this time just talking about her and talking about the last couple of weeks and I'm sure you would love that it might be more inspiring than whatever else I have to say I don't know um, but uh, um, one of the coolest things is you know when you when you haven't when you I've never been this been done this before but you know when you're about to have a baby or when you know, on my end when your wife's about to have a baby you know you you the last thing you really think about is you know what she's going to look like and you know what she what, you know how is she going to be similar to you um, which is really what I prayed wouldn't happen um, um, but uh, she she does, I don't know about y'all, but everybody's going to be doing it the whole service. So, and I won't do it in front of you because I don't want that to be kind of um, rude. But um, some of you, you know, you can roll your tongue, you're right? And you can make your tongue kind of roll up in a, in a um, maybe if you can't and you're trying to do it, it's really frustrating. Uh, mom can't, but dad can. I guess I got that from him. And, and Andy got that from me. One of the first things, one of the first things she did when I was holding her, she looked at me and she rolled her tongue. And I was like, well, that's kind of, um, that's kind of neat. Um, and I've got a bunch of people pictures of her just sticking her tongue out at me, uh, rolling it up. So she's proud that she can do that. And uh, I should have put one on the screen and show everybody. But uh, again, I don't want to get too sidetracked, but uh, she's great. And, uh, and, and Lindsay's just doing remarkably. Uh, she's handled everything um, beautifully. And, and she's, uh, you know, obviously doing, doing uh, great and, and inspires me every day uh, to do the best that I can. But what I really wanted to do today um, was to show you how the first few weeks with our baby left me with some ideas that really complemented and punctuated what I'd been planning for us to talk about today anyway. So I kind of had this message um, in the works for the last couple, last month or so. And uh, I, I thought I had it done two weeks ago because I had a lot of time sitting there in the delivery room waiting for things to happen and I thought why not I, I guess I should just work I'm not really being too comforting to Lindsay and what she's going through so I just kind of sat down at some point and started typing but then over the last couple of weeks some things uh, came to my mind that I thought wow that's really complimentary to what um, is uh, you know what what we were going to talk about today anyway so for a while now um, the plan was to kick off uh, today to kick off the year kick off uh, the new year with a series on the great commission 
called, of course, the Great Commission at Risen. So the goal was, and the goal still is, that we, uh, that, that we start this year off with a fresh look at God's Word and that we receive a fresh revelation from Him about what is supposed to be the heartbeat of the local church and, of course, of our local church. And Now, this series got pushed back because of weather and obvious reasons, but I'm glad that it did because it allowed me some time to sharpen this connection that I think most of you can relate to, uh, that I think my experience is similar to many of your life experiences. Uh, so leading up to Andrea's birth, people kept asking me what people love to ask people that are about to go into something that they've never been into before and don't know what they're doing, doing and don't know how to, don't know the first thing about what they're about to do. Um, people ask me week after week after week, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? And, and, and if you know my personality, you know that my response is pretty generic. Um, I don't give the best responses when people ask me things like that. And it's not that I don't have an answer. Sometimes I just don't give an answer. Um, but also, if you know the lengths that Lindsay and I went to to even get to this point, uh, years of treatments and all sorts of, you know, experiments and, and, and things, uh, medicines and things, uh, you know that we had a long time to get ready and prepare. Uh, but of course, nothing's, you know, it, nothing can, can really prepare you for, the, for that moment. Um, but all throughout praying and preparing the best way that I knew how and that we knew how, I, I also sort of believed, and maybe you can relate to me on this, I just sort of believed that once she was here, uh, knowing mine and Lindsay's determination and knowing our partnership, I, I just sort of believed that we would find the right gears and find the right rhythm and we would figure it out along the way what we needed to do to be the best that we could be. Uh, and, and I think I can speak for both of us on this one. Uh, check the comments, Lindsay might critique me, but I, I think I can speak for both of us. The moment we saw her, the moment that we held her, and the moment that we finally met her, uh, it was like there was this aura over both of us. And Lindsay's probably had this going on longer than me. But for me, it was like this aura, this revelation uh, over us and with us and within us. And, and, and I believed it would always be with us and it would always guide us and it will always direct us as parents. And, and now, I, I don't know if this is how it is for everybody, but and I didn't even workshop this with Lindsay, but, but I think... 99% sure she would agree that when we finally met Andrea and held her, as we started living those first few days, it was like there was this tremendous commission over us, over our lives, that something I haven't been able to shake since that Monday night two weeks ago. And as I processed it all, um, there were three different words that began to stick out to me regarding this feeling, this, this, this idea that came over me as we were just entrusted with our daughter. And I know, I know what you're thinking, Justin, you just had, your baby was born and you come up with a three-point sermon. You know, that's kind of how my mind works, I, but I don't think she'll take it personally. But no, these three words kind of came to my mind over the last couple of weeks. And, and this aura that's been over me, uh, reminder, responsibility, and reward. And, and, and this is kind of how my brain works. I kind of begin to articulate the whole thing like this. But I promise you, these capture the driving force, the guiding spirit that's presided over my heart and my mind over the last 13 days. Now, now that Andrea is here, it, it's just like when Lindsay and I got married. And the impression on my soul, there's a reminder over my spirit that compels me and consistently you know, causes me to think about her and, and, and think about what it means to care for her and be all that she needs me to be. And, and, and I just can't shake it. That reminder is ever present. And nobody had to 
tell me that. No one had to whisper it to me or speak it to me. No one had to give me a book that told me, hey, you should remember this. It was like something came over me. And it's not a burden. It's not an inconvenience. It's a motivation. It's really inspiration. Now, at the same time, in my mind, in our minds, there is this undeniable weight of responsibility that even if we didn't feel inspiration, even if we didn't delight in it deep down, we both know there is an obligation over us to provide for her and nurture her and love her and care for her, that that is our responsibility because she's been placed into our hands by God and we're required to parent her and we will be judged regarding how well we did. Now, all the while with this reminder and with this sense of responsibility. In our hearts, there's this feeling of joy. There's this feeling of blessing. There's this reward that every moment with her is a gift. And, and, and as we know that, that if we follow this reminder and this responsibility, being able to watch her grow is going to be one of the most rewarding things that we've ever been able to enjoy for, for uh, unmatched and unrivaled for either of us. Now, I can't say what came over me, and I don't think it was instinctual because it hadn't always been there. Uh, or if it was, it was only recently awakened. Uh, it's akin to what dawns on you after you're married or after you've taken on some other sacred, holy task. There's this sense of inspiration, this divine reminder that holds us responsible. And this is true in so many areas of our lives, that holds us responsible, but also entices us with the reward that comes from being faithful in whatever area God has placed us in in life. And speaking of holy and sacred task, with all that being said, I, I, I think these same conclusions, I think these same conclusions can be drawn when it comes to our understanding of the Great Commission. And, and maybe it's just because of the proximity, my experience and my preparation, but I really don't think so because honestly, I had these points ironed out before this whole last couple of weeks happened. Uh, but as Christians, as Christians, the Great Commission looms over all of us, not just some of us, all of us. Long-time Christians, first-time Christians, church members, non-church members, pastors, lay people, all of us. The Great Commission looms over. Now, now, maybe you don't know what the Great Commission is, so I want to make sure that we're all on the same page here. Uh, the Great Commission refers to the final word that Jesus spoke over his disciples before he ascended to heaven. Now, the word commission really explains it all. Jesus commissioned the church, them in the original days, and us all these years later. He commissioned them with a very specific task. And I want to break down that word commission real quickly for you. Commission can be defined as a duty assigned by a superior wherein those involved or those commissioned also stand to gain or lose. So it's not just something we've been told to do that only benefits the one above us, but it's something that we also have a stake in. That word commission is, is really two words. It's the preface com and then mission. Now we know what mission means. Mission simply means to be given a job to do. But the preface com is, is the word we get the idea of group effort from. The idea of togetherness and community from. Uh, wherein we are individual participants but we all stand to benefit from it. Now just from the definition itself, when we are commissioned to do something, we know there's something at stake. 
something that is beyond us and something that definitely will impact us and benefit us if we are uh, faithful. Now, the basic definition in mind, I want to go ahead and figure out what the Great Commission is, specifically when it comes to Christianity and when it comes to the church. So if you have your Bibles opened, Matthew 28, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, this is what God's Word says. Then the eleven disciples went away unto Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, highlight or underline this if you do that, when they saw him, they worshipped him. And some doubted, but as a group, they all worshipped him. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And here's the commission itself. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Teach all the nations. Go and make disciples of all the nations, of all the people, of everybody, baptizing them into the name, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, or behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, to the end of this earth. Amen. Now, all these verses are important for us to understand the nature of the Great Commission, but really verse 19 is the main attraction. Uh, From the very beginning of the church, from the earliest of days of Christianity, this movement, really our movement that we're a part of, this movement has always been about disciples of Jesus making more disciples of Jesus. You could define the Great Commission like this. Those who know Jesus, making him known to those who do not know Jesus. It sounds simple enough, right? Uh, Now, I think contextually, though, this passage gives us a hint that that this did not catch his disciples off guard. Now, this wasn't some generic, hollow call from a businessman or from a business leader saying, hey, go and multiply my, my business, go and grow my company, like maybe a corporation would, would you know, focus its on, and maybe you, you know, if you're involved in a, in a big company or even a small company, somebody who's in charge stands before you every year and says, hey, I want you to do this to benefit me, or maybe it's going to benefit you if you make enough and you bring enough in, but th- this wasn't some hollow, generic call like that. Maybe that's how it's been presented to you through the years, but I want to show you a few important things about this passage. Now, I want to go in reverse. In verse 18, when Jesus, or before Jesus gives this commission, he says to them, all authority has been given to me under heaven and on earth that it's clear that he is large and he is in charge, right? Which wouldn't have been a surprise to anybody there that day. They had literally just watched him die on a cross. They all unfollowed him, right? John stayed, but everybody else said, I quit, I'm done, I don't know him. They denied him, they betrayed him, they forsook him, they hid from everyone else because they were afraid of being associated with him. They all quit following Jesus that Friday, They no longer believed in Jesus. And then on Sunday, Peter and John, who thought, I wonder what we're going to do next, 
got word that the tomb was empty and that Jesus had risen. And they all ran in disbelief. John got in the tomb and believed, but Peter did not believe and the rest of them did not believe. And when they were trying to figure out what had happened, Jesus walked through the wall that afternoon when they were gathered in the upper room and says, hey y'all, I know you quit following me, but do you want to reconsider? And of course they did reconsider. Of course they said we're back on board because he had risen just like he said he would. But at first they did not believe. They thought it was a a fairy tale being told. But when they saw him, they fell in front of him. It was clear to them, this is not just a man. This is the Son of God. This is God made flesh. This is our Savior. And they signed up to do whatever he would ask them to do. Because of course, if you follow a man who predicted his own death and resurrection, you would too. Or you should too. Now it's clear to them, something massive had taken place. Something had changed the landscape of human history. So when he says, all authority is mine, that's not a surprise to them. You know why he's saying that in this text? It's not for them, it's for us. It's to make us aware, why were they worshiping him, even if they did have doubt still? Because they had just saw, they had just witnessed all this. I mean, in their lives, God in flesh had descended to earth to bear their sins. And then he descended to death to bury their sins. They watched that happen. That all happened on their watch. That happened in front of them. He descended to earth, bore their sins. He descended to hell, buried their sins. And then he ascended back to earth to change their lives. To proclaim their sins were forgiven. To proclaim that their lives were no longer held back by sin and shame. To declare to them that they were now made new. And to include them in what was about to happen next. He ascended back to earth and he was about to ascend back to heaven to change the world. And he was including them in that process. So they wouldn't have been standing there that day as if they were hearing a CEO give a vision for his business. They stood before him, or really bowed before him, the resurrected Savior of the world who was inviting them to be a part of his plan to change their, everyone's hearts just as he changed their hearts. And what's even more clear, Jesus does not proclaim that all authority is mine, again, for their sake, but he says that for us. Because verse 17 makes it clear they already understood that. What are they doing in verse 17? They are worshiping him. They didn't have to wait for him to say, hey, you should worship me or you should obey me. They were already doing it because they had just witnessed all this over the last couple of days because they knew. Man, did they know. And what he was about to speak over them would have made complete sense. It would have been the next logical step after having just received the greatest gift that they could have never earned or deserved on their own. And, And here's where we're going with this. I think as followers of Jesus, if we're really in tune with him, if we're really in sync with him, then this commission echoes those points that we talked about earlier. That there is this reminder over us. There is this feeling of responsibility within us. And there is this reward that is always before us. See, as followers of Jesus, belonging to him and connected to him, desiring to please him, the great commission is impressed deep down on our souls. 
We should ever be reminded and guided by this. It is the presiding principle over our life day after day. At the same time, we cannot escape what C.S. Lewis calls our alt to, our Christian responsibility, our God-given imperative that says you must. We are not only driven by this overarching reminder, we are held accountable by this heavy responsibility, but it's not a burden. Again, it's not grievous, it's not stressful, it's a blessing to bear. Because obeying it and seeing the truth, seeing the fruits of our labor for the kingdom is tremendously rewarding. The question is, are we as believers, are we as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, as children of God, as citizens of heaven? The question is, are we allowing the reminder of the responsibility of, the reward of the Great Commission? Are we allowing the Great Commission to compel us and guide us and order our steps like it was the original church? If our faith, if our faith in Christ and our belonging to God is our most defining characteristic, then the Great Commission should be and will be our number one priority. But I think for a lot of us, if we're being honest, and let's be honest because we're all friends here and we all love each other and God already knows anyway. If we're being honest, this isn't the case for, it, for us, is it? And a lot of us, for a lot of us, the Great Commission isn't even on our radar. And in a lot of ways, the church is to blame because what's been proclaimed and promoted by the church is everything but the Great Commission. And when it's brought up, I think it's brought up in such a sterile, dispassionate way that we just kind of look at it and think, well, I guess some people are good at that. I don't know about me. But when we open up the New Testament, when we understand the Bible's message and intended plan for us and how we are all meant to be involved in God's kingdom and as it's been established and being established here on earth, it becomes so very obvious to us the Great Commission is the banner over everything that we do that we cannot avoid that reminder. We cannot escape that responsibility. And nothing else will match the reward that comes from being faithful to it. Now, if you already figured this out, this is a message that is specifically geared toward the church as an institution, towards professing committed Christians. So if you're somebody, if you're listening, if you're somebody that you, you, would, you would define yourself as kind of an outsider, you're on the periphery of the church, you attend, but you're not really a participant and you don't really think it's for you, and, and that's okay if that's where you're at, but I, I want to get you closer. Uh, listen, I don't think this message is, if you don't think this message is as important for you, I, I hope it helps you understand what the church is called to be and who the church is called to be and how this is a serious, unavoidable purpose the church must wrestle with and must come to terms with. So if you're skeptical uh, and you wonder why you should take it serious, I hope this informs you what the church's mission day in and day out is, and perhaps you'll understand why the church is always hounding you to become one of us. But as for all of us who are already in, this is such an important conversation because for some reason, this hasn't always been the forefront of the local church's mission. It's something that comes up seasonally, it comes up periodically, we have Great Commission Sunday here and there, but it's seldom prioritized as it should be. And I think it's not far-fetched to say that many people, many people that, for, that frequent the church regularly do not know how core this is to our identity. And maybe the reason it gets downplayed is because while we love the idea of people coming to Jesus, we all feel inadequate when it comes to leading those people to Jesus. Because when we hear Great Commission, I know what words you hear, and you don't hear the word that we're going to talk about. When you hear the Great Commission, you hear the idea of witnessing 
and you hear this idea of witness, witness, witness. And don't get me wrong, that's a very core component to the Great Commission, but it's not the only part, and it's not even the first part. What I'd like to show you today is that the Great Commission actually begins with something else. And if we all understand this and begin to see this as a stepping stone toward fulfilling our mandate as Christians, I think the whole process will begin to be less intimidating and more inviting. Because before the disciples are given the Great Commission, before they ever look like superheroes in the book of Acts, witnessing to everybody that they come in contact with, before they were ever sent, they were found worshiping Jesus. Do you see that? Before they were ever told to go and be witnesses, they were found to be worshipers. And that posture of worship is what propelled them and what prepared them to receive this great commission and run with it. So maybe you don't know, but did you know that your act of worship is an essential first step in your fulfilling the great commission? Now, there are some people who think that they can do it without worshiping first, and they may look like they're professional witnesses, but if they lack this component, they lack the true spirit of what drives the whole movement. But a lot of us, we may realize we have a role to play, and we didn't realize it was this accessible, and we had already taken that first step. But maybe what I hope to accomplish today is to show you what you may be leaving on the table each and every Sunday. I think this actually lowers the barrier of entry because I, I think for a lot of us, we feel like we can't witness, but we all know what worship is, or I think we at least know where it starts. It's an achievable action. It is a desirable one at that. The Great Commission. The Great Commission begins with worship. We'll get to witnessing. We'll get to whatever comes next. Now, for a lot of us, this is really, this is really a 20th century, 21st century church problem but for a lot of us, when we hear the word worship, and if this is how you hear it, and, and this is what you think, that, you know, I think I, I might not change your mind, but I hope I can. When a lot of us hear the word worship, we hear something and we, we, we think of something that we have to be led into. Maybe that's you. When you hear worship, you think of something that has to be conjured up, something that has to be kind of manufactured, and that worship is something done for you and done in front of you and something that you're led into, but it's not something that all of us do in and of ourselves. And, and I believe that is one of the greatest lies the devil has ever told any of us. And most believers have fell for it and can't imagine it being any other way. You are not beholden to someone leading you in worship, pumping you up in worship, Worship is a decision that we make. It's an act that we go through with when we consider a single question. Is Jesus worth it? Worship is your response to that question. The life that you live, the voice that you use, the things that you do, of course the songs that you sing, but worship is a response to that question. Is Jesus worth it? Worship is ascribing worth to someone or something. And I think the question that if you ask, think about if you ask yourself this question every morning when you got out of bed. Before you go to do whatever you want to do and all that you got to do and all the things that need to be done, you ask yourself and you look at this question, is Jesus worth it? I think just asking that question, considering that question would open your heart up to the Holy Spirit that would cause you to be sensitive to his conviction in ways you never were before. Is Jesus worth it? Worth what? Everything. 
right? Worth living for, worth glorifying, worth prioritizing, worth obeying. Come on, worship has become a passive experience, but it's never meant to be that. Worship has always been an active exercise. It's not just verbally, but it's emotionally, it's mentally, it's what we do physically every single day. Worship is our response to who we value the most. Worship is our response to the value and the worth of Jesus. And when we consider who he is and what he's done, and we begin to see how, he, how worship translates to our walk, and of course the rest of the Great Commission will come easy at that point. So is Jesus worth it? Of course he is. But then the question becomes, how worthy is Jesus? How worthy? Well, he's worth a couple hours a week. He's worth this percentage. He's worth this much. I mean, if you begin to ask yourself, is Jesus worth it? But then you begin to ask yourself, how worthy is Jesus? I mean, is there any response besides the most worthy that, that is appropriate there? So when we set our hearts and minds that Jesus is worthy, he is the most worthy, worship becomes our minute-by-minute minute priority. And you know what that does to Sundays? Wednesdays or whenever else you gather with the people of God, even if you do this in your own homes, you know what that does to the gatherings of God's people? When you begin to gather for worship, when you begin to gather to proclaim and declare that what God has done and proclaim that God is able to save, all of a sudden we are collectively reminded of what he's done and we feel that responsibility to share that message with those that have not yet been touched by him but can. And we begin to be enticed by that reward of seeing people obtain what we have obtained, of knowing what we know. This is how the Great Commission can become almost natural for us. When we proclaim and declare that God is able to save and as he has saved me, he can save anyone. And that responsibility begins to weigh on us. And as we begin to proclaim his worth and live for his glory and prioritizing his kingdom, we are led by that responsibility and we begin to realize there is no greater reward than seeing him change lives. But I got something else for you. That worship, and when we engage in worship, there is a power of worship. There is a power from worship that you can obtain. So how can we unlock the power of worship? And again, this isn't a feeling in a Sunday service, but this is something that goes with us that will fuel your faithfulness to the Great Commission. The true power of worship, and it's so crucial when it comes to helping us take that next step in witnessing and welcoming people to God. And don't get nervous, but here's what it is. Worship prepares us for and empowers us with a prophetic voice, a bold voice that can proclaim the mighty works of God and proclaim the mighty power of God to a world that does not know it and has not felt it yet. This is what the church lacks more than anything. Now, let me make this very clear. Some people are given gifts that allow them to be ministers and pastors and teachers that others might not have, and that's fine, that's biblical. 
But there is available to us all a microphone. Really, it's a megaphone that allows us to speak into the world the glory of, for the glory of God for the sake of those who do not know Jesus. And engaging in worship, this is so important, engaging in worship is essential if you're ever going to participate in that Great Commission. And while I do believe that some are more gifted than others, the Great Commission is not an option for believers. All of us are called and are given this commission by God and I think we best all be chasing after and seeking after this kind of voice that equips us and enables us to obey God in this way. You see, worship serves a very specific purpose. It's the exaltation of God and his truth that is free from opinion and not bound by circumstances. When we engage in worship, we proclaim his truth, sometimes over and against varying opinions and circumstances and feelings. And it's that worship, and, 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 it's, and it's that act of worship that awakens and activates this power within us and enables us to go to a world on mission. It's an act of obedience and gesture toward the Holy Spirit that allows him to enter our presence and move through our lives. And this might sound like just positive thinking to you, but I want to explain why it's not that. Because positive thinking begins and ends with you. It requires you to come up with the positivity and it requires you to continue to believe in him. But this is different because God's truth exists apart from us and outside of us and our faith in it and our proclaiming of it simply allows it to take a greater hold in our hearts and minds. We're not fabricating it. We're not like the world does and tries to manifest things into existence. This is an act of trusting God and exalting God in an exercise of our faith, believing in what he has said is reality. Listen to what the Bible says this power is able to do if we begin to live, in that, live a lifestyle of worship. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know who, who's writing that verse? The Apostle Paul. And what's he writing about? The stronghold of a heart under the power of sin. God's truth when we trust in it, God's grace when, we when it's transferred to us has tremendous power to counter the stronghold of sin, shame, and darkness. And when we begin seeking that power in us, that power longs to work through us and that's what many of us are missing when it comes to the Great Commission. Now let me talk about the idea of prophetic before anybody gets confused. It's not like the Old Testament prophets when they said something as if they just heard it from God. Because all that God has ever said and will ever say is revealed for us completely in the word of God. The message of salvation, what it means, what it takes to change our lives. So for us, worship equips us and trains us not to, th not to say, this is what God showed me, but to say boldly, thus says the word of the Lord, allowing us to be vessels of God's word to those who have never read it. And this is something, and you might not believe this, this is something the New Testament calls every Christian to pursue. Every Christian. Take it from Paul. Pursue love. Earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may have this prophetic voice, this gift of being able to proclaim God's word and proclaim God's power to those who have not experienced it and those who do not know it. 
And that's where worship comes in. It allows us to internalize the truth and engage with God's grace. He says this later on. The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation so that the church may be built up. Again, it's handling God's word and it's proclaiming to people what God has done in us. That is an act of worship that God has called every one of you to. If we're ever gonna find this voice, we have to hone it in our worship services. There's a text, I think, that allows, the, that allows us to witness the power of worship in a remarkable way. I'd like to show you that in closing. If you have a bookmark in Ezekiel 37, I'd love for you to turn over there. We'll, real quickly, I want you to re- hear this famous exchange between God and his prophet as he looked over the nation of Israel as it was really struggling spiritually. Ezekiel 37, the hand of the Lord came upon me and brought me out in the spirit and the Lord set me down in the midst of a valley and it was full of bones. And he caused me to pass by them and around them and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry as in they'd been dead a long time and they were not coming, there was no life left anywhere around that valley. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, you know. And that's, that's you know, prophet talk for, I doubt it but I guess you know more than I know, so you're probably about to show me something that I shouldn't, I don't know, so I'm just going to let you talk. And he said to me, Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to these bones. I want you to speak life over these bones. I want you to proclaim over these bones, all dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. So listen, this isn't Ezekiel saying, hey, I've got something you need to hear. This is Ezekiel being told to tell these bones what God has said. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I'll put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you will know that I am the Lord. So let me break this down. Before the bones could come back to life, Ezekiel had to have faith in God's ability to raise them up. Are we on the same page? They were dead. They were dry. They were bones. Before they could ever come back, the prophet had to have faith in God's ability to bring them back. So the bones could not believe for themselves. They could not advocate for themselves. They needed a prophetic voice. They needed a bold voice to speak on their behalf. People come to me all the time and say, Justin, have you not seen the world? Of course. The Bible says it's dead in this, it's dead in sin. It's a valley of dry bones. They can't believe. They can't advocate. Of course they can. No wonder they're the shape they're in. They need a voice that will speak on their behalf. Do you see the picture? There's a world out there that we love to criticize and gossip about and argue with, but what is God's calling over us? To speak life to them, to speak hope and to speak the gospel, the power of God to save and resurrect, the goodness of God. And as you engage in worship, we remember what God has done and we behold the wonder of his saving power and we know he can do it again. And the more we are refreshed by what God has done, the more compassionate we are to those who are waiting on him to do it in them, and the more compelled we are to go show them that he can do it. Do you hear that? The more we are refreshed by it, the more compelled we are to go and see him do it in others. You see, worship is the beginning of the Great Commission. 
Worship is where we remember his worth and his work over us. We feel the responsibility to share with the world. Our reward will forever be seeing his wonderful saving power change lives. As we worship in here, we are prepared to work out there, to go to a world out there. So what will it be, church? God said to Ezekiel, and God is really saying to you and me today, son, daughter, he's asking this question, can these bones live? What's our response? Come on, read it with me. Yes, Lord, as we live, so can they. God says, can these bones live? And what do you say? Yes, Lord, as we live, so can they. But listen, church, what the world needs is us to pursue the love of God and to pursue the love of people. And the way we pursue it is we pray that God give us that bold voice, that voice that prophesies over the people, proclaims truth to them, and provides grace to them, encouraging and uplifting and consoling them with the words of God. Listen, they don't need to hear what I've got to say. They don't need to hear what I think I can figure out about them and for them. That's not what they need. They need what God's word has already provided. What changed you and changed everyone else under the word of God or under the grace of God can still do it. And when you begin to worship God, the way we ought to, you remember what he's done for you and you are responsible to see him do it for others. The question over us every day, if you read the rest of that chapter in Ezekiel, I I don't think it's any surprise, but those bones come back to life. The bones, down in verse 11, it says, the house of Israel said the hope was lost, that they were cut off. But verse 12, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves, cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land. Again, spiritually for us, this is the ability God has to save anyone and to raise anybody up from their sin. And they will know that he is the Lord. So every single day, there's a question over you. Is Jesus worth it? Is he worth it? And if he's worth it, how worthy is he? And if we answer that question rightly, we will worship him with vertical praise, singing and glorifying him, but more importantly, with horizontal proclamation. That's what it means to love, to horizontally reach out, to proclaim God's word and to proclaim his work, encourage and uplift to somebody that may not even realize there's hope for them. But you know his hope, don't you? And what would happen if God gave you that? And I know God wants to give it to you. What would happen if you took that voice that he wants to give you today and began using it for a world in need? Who in here today would be willing to answer the question, is Jesus worth it? Who will commit to saying, yes, he is. And I will praise him today and I will proclaim him tomorrow. And I will prophesy, I will proclaim the words of grace and truth to a world without him tomorrow. He's worth it, isn't he? If we want to fulfill the Great Commission, it's not by going through a class that makes us good witnessers. It's by allowing God to show us who he is and gaining a heart of worship 
and living from that place. And that's something that all of us are invited to experience today. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. When you speak over a valley of dry bones, those bones come back to life. Everybody in the house today would be a corpse spiritually without you. Everybody in here would be lost, dead in their sins, without hope and without life and without eternal life, without you. But because you spoke over them and probably through somebody that loved them, you spoke words of grace and truth over them and that dry bone, that corpse came back to life. Lord, as we begin to understand who you are and how, worth, how much worth there is in Jesus and how worthy he is, as we begin to worship him and ascribe to him what the glory he deserves, Lord, would you instill in us this reminder and this responsibility that we as Christians cannot avoid? Would you put the reward of seeing lives changed in front of us and compel us every single day to be like Ezekiel, to be like the Apostle Paul called the church to be, to proclaim to the world that there is a God who loves you and there is a God who can save you. This is where the Great Commission begins, by proclaiming to you and to the whole world that our God is great and there is no one like him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.